0: Well, good morning, new community. Great to be with you this morning. It's sunny out there. What a a miserable wet weekend we've had, but uh, things are looking up. I'm always intrigued by family likenesses. I've got a number of grandchildren, and uh, one of my grandchildren in particular, little Jonah, uh, I often look at him and I think, there's just a little Matt uh, growing up, and I think a lot of people think the same. I've got one son. He's going to be 36 this week, so he's not young anymore, but when he was a teenager... Uh, people used to look at him and uh, probably because of some of his mannerisms and and, uh, his manner in general, they'd say, oh, Jonathan is so like his dad. And uh, John's response was always, yeah, scary, isn't it? And um, I guess teenage boys don't particularly like to be identified with their ageing parents. But uh, that was our John. There was a family likeness. And we've been considering the fully human one uh, Jesus in this series they've been doing together and we've been asking ourselves uh, what it, it looks like to bring about change and transformation in our lives so that we become more and more reflection, reflections of him, uh, little Jesuses if you like. I came across this quote from Alan Hirsch and he says this, if we're going to impact our world in the name of Jesus it'll be because people like you and me took action in the power of the Spirit Ever since the mission and ministry of Jesus, God has never stopped calling for a movement of little Jesuses to follow into the world and unleash the remarkable redemptive genius that lies in the very message we carry. So this idea of being a a little Jesus, just like a a little Matt or a little Steve, um, what an amazing thing. If people could look at followers of Jesus and say, ah, he's, he's becoming a little Jesus. And we look back and we say, yeah, scary, isn't it? Scarily good. We've been looking at a, a diagram that um, has been helpful for us, and uh, it's this diagram that Les prepared for us, cultivating a life after Jesus together. And it's a, it's a, a terrific image, and uh, we're really thankful for for having that in front of us. And I just want to review it really quickly. When you think about um, the whole process, it starts with renewal, a renewal of our hearts, a change of our hearts. And that's when we encounter Jesus for the first time. Our hearts are changed. We're renewed from the inside out. Romans 12 talks about having a renewed mind, about worshipping God with our body, about giving him control, about allowing him to renew our thinking. And so we have this idea of being renewed from the very inside out. And then we talk about being empowered. Our power doesn't come from ourselves. It comes from the fact that we have a connection uh, with God. And we need to sink our roots deep. We've talked about Psalm 1 that talks about being like a tree planted by a river of water. And we, in John 15 it talks about remaining connected uh, with the vine, we're like branches, and we can ma- remain connected to the main uh, part of the vine. And and so we're empowered as we sink our roots deep. And then we talked about how the, the fact that actually we're part of a, a process of producing fruit, our lives, when we're connected with Jesus, need to be fruitful lives. And so the best way to know what God is like is by getting to know Jesus. And the more we sp- Spend time getting to know him the more he rubs off on us and there's a t- fantastic verse in John 15 that says remain in me as I also remain in you no branch can bear fruit by itself it must remain in the vine and neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me I'm the vine you are the branches if you remain in me and I in you you will bear much fruit apart from me you can do nothing and so we need to remain in the vine if we're going to be fruitful. We need to remain connected. Then we talked about pruning. And I think some of the, uh, the, the the things that we've been talking about in all these weeks have been about how God has been actually doing some pruning in the lives of each one of us who's been speaking. And we, we ask God to prune us so that we can be even more fruitful. We want God to reveal in our lives the thing that, things that need to be cut off Jesus says I'm the true vine and my father is the gardener and he cuts off every branch in me that doesn't bear fruit and every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful and so we have this idea of cutting off the things that aren't useful but we also have the idea in this chart of participating in things that are useful that do grow us And so we've talked about how we can involve ourselves in habits and practices that help us to grow more and more into the image of Jesus. And so far in this series, we've touched on patience, we've touched on humility, and we've touched on authenticity. And so today, I want to share with you an aspect of the life of Jesus that I want to grow in. It's been a process and I think as all the people who have spoken in this series have admitted, I'm nowhere near, uh, I've nowhere near made it in any way. Um, I'm nowhere near even now where I need to be and I'm 63 years old and sometimes that's a, 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 a daunting thought that I've still got a long way to go. But I'm making progress because I, I know that God is loving and I know that God is patient and I know that he's at work. And I think for all of us as we listen this morning, we're all works in progress and God hasn't finished with any one of us. Now Jesus, although he was the son of God and although he was equal with God, he was fully God and yet he became fully human and he showed us by example a life of prayerful dependence on his father and that's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about dependence and I want to talk about the subtle struggle that goes on in me uh, to push through on my own. A few years back I became uh, really aware, probably more aware than I had been in the past, uh, of a a change in the way I was reacting internally, uh, especially when I was busy and under stress and I started feeling really overwhelmed by just the day-to-day stuff of life and although I think... I could hide it pretty well. There was something going on me that I I didn't like. Um, There were times when I was uncharacteristically short um, with people. I I was extremely slow to admit I had any problems. I was extremely slow to ask for help. And internally I felt uh, very critical when I felt someone else wasn't meeting my expectations or pulling their weight or, or even being agreeable. And... I was losing perspective and I was losing joy in, in what I was doing. And around the same time, um, Ian John, who you'll know from our New Community, and I, we were leading a course called Growing Leaders. And in about the third week of that course, the whole session was about maintaining that first love you had for Jesus. And they talked about how easy it was to get into a cycle of working for acceptance, um, rather than from acceptance, and I realized for the, the for, perhaps for the the first time it put it in in a really clear um, perspective for me, I realized that that was a real and significant struggle for me see I knew jesus i 'd known Jesus for a long time, and I would have told you that i I loved him and I relied on him and I depended on him. And when I was young, I learned all those those verses like Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not by works, so no one should boast. And then there was one in Titus 3, 5, I think it said, uh, not by works of, of righteousness that we've done, but, but because of his mercy he saved us. And so all those things were in my mind. And I remember that quote from Philip Yancey that a lot of people when seem to quote, that said there was nothing I could do that could make him love me more and nothing that I've done could make him love me less. And so there was this sense that I knew that I was loved by God and yet there was a struggle going on in me. And I realised how easily I could fall into this unhealthy pattern of working for a sense of acceptance rather than working from acceptance. Now in this um, course, Growing Leaders, they had this uh, diagram... And they called it the, the grief cycle. I've called it the driven cycle because I think we get it mixed up with stages of grief. And it's only called the grief cycle because if you're in this cycle, um, you, you, you feel a lot of grief. Um, so this is it. It goes like this. If our identity, if my identity, starting at number one, is tied up in what I achieve, then I'm going to fill my life with activity to provide myself with an identity Uh, because I need to do that to feel significant. And so I'll work hard to try and build myself up and feel okay about myself, feel significant. And that um, drives me to just do that more and more. I become driven because I need to achieve more and more to make myself acceptable to others and to myself. And this sense of acceptance comes only after I've done all that, and it's a really temporary, uh, fragile sense of acceptance because it's only keeps I only keep feeling it if I keep going around the cycle, so the more I achieve, the more I feel good about myself and the more i 'm driven to achieve more and uh, It becomes one of those um, really easy cycles to get caught up in, and I found that was what was happening for me. Some of the dominant messages behind this drivenness that I found were the sort of message that says don 't admit you 're not coping. Um, don't let people down. You can't let other people down. Don't ask for help and act as if everything's fine. And I found when I was in that sort of cycle and my mindset was like that, um, I'd do a lot of comparing, comparing myself with others who I thought performed better than I did and wanting to measure up. And uh, certainly personal criticism was not handled well, even though I probably tried to hide it. Um, it rocked my sense of self-worth. And so almost without knowing it, I'd allowed myself to be working for acceptance rather than from acceptance. And I would feel the need to give more and more and more rather than being able to rest in the knowledge that I was God's child, that God loves me, that he loves me for who I am and I don't have to perform to be accepted by him well the beautiful contrast in this course to the cycle of grief or the driven cycle was what they called the cycle of grace and uh, it goes in the opposite direction in this diagram and you'll see it starts with acceptance and God loves me and God accepts me unconditionally, do I really believe that have I accepted that, do I realise that I don't have to prove myself, I'm accepted by God and as I depend on him, he sustains me. And he resources me for all that I need to do. And my sense of significance comes from who I am in him. We've done a series recently on Ephesians. and If you want to read Ephesians chapter 2 and the first little bit, you'll understand that that's where our identity comes from. It comes from the fact that we're chosen and we're adopted into the family of God. We, we belong. And so that's where our sense of significance comes from. I'm a loved child of God. And out, out of that relationship of love flows fruitfulness. So it's good to achieve, it's good to do things, but in, in the in the right context. And so I can achieve, I can be fruitful because I recognise that it's not me, it's God's grace at work in me, it's not my works that are going to be the good thing. But God has made me, almost like a masterpiece, it says in Ephesians 2, it's on his workmanship, created to do good things that he's prepared for me to do. And so the cycle continues and it works from acceptance rather than for acceptance. What a, what a different perspective that is. And when I was confronted with that, I thought, what do I do about this? How do I regain perspective? I realised that subtly uh, a sense of intimacy with Jesus had become secondary for me. And it wasn't wrong to want to work hard. Um, grace is not opposed to effort but to earning. We keep, keep quoting Dallas Willard. Um, but the priority is being in love with God for his sake. And so I went back to an old practice that I've spoken to you about before, but that's helped me greatly. It had helped me greatly in the past and it continues to do so. And it's called the Prayer of examine. Up until COVID-19, you could have found me most mornings uh, early before work in a quiet coffee shop somewhere with a cup of coffee and a notebook and a Bible and a pen, a few other people around, and I began to establish a regular pattern of reviewing my days and allowing God to, to search my heart. And as I did this, and as I noted things in my notebook, patterns emerged, and the areas that I needed God to help me address became clearer. I was doing what the psalmist said in Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. I was saying to God, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts, and see if there's any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting and so I just want to share with you really briefly this prayer of examine and if you want more about this we can certainly give you more resources but this just is a a a quick rundown what it is I spend some time just being still and recognizing God and his presence sometimes that comes quickly sometimes it it maybe requires me to uh, put on a a worship song or something that enables me to just feel here I'm quiet I've quieted myself and I'm in the very presence of God. And then I I review my day with gratitude. I I review the previous day, uh, because I'm not so good at night at doing this, but uh, probably it's fresher in your mind if you do it at night. But I review the previous day, and I try to acknowledge God and his presence in the big things and the small things, and review the things that have gone on in the previous day. And then I ask God about the day, and I ask him to lead me by his Spirit and to identify for me, the things that actually stand out? What is it that that I need to recognise about the day that has just been? And there's some questions that really help me in this, and I I ask them different ones, different times. But uh, I might ask, God, what do you want to show me about yesterday? Or what habits and patterns did I notice about the things that I got up to yesterday? When did I give love yesterday? When did I receive love yesterday? When did my life, my actions reflect you? When was I more inclined to leave you out and ignore you? Um, When did I feel most fully alive? Questions like that that really helped me to review my day in the light of what uh, God was wanting to show me. And then as as I do that, and certainly as you do that over a period of time and you look back, you see that the same sort of things start cropping up. And there's some of those are the things that you need to address where you've asked God to search you. And then you, you pray. Uh, and I could then pray uh, looking back, knowing that I'd identified these things that, that, that needed work in my life. And I was able to commit them to God and ask him for his help. And then I could pray looking forward and resolve um, to change. So I found that incredibly helpful I could pray to God for, for strength, for, for wisdom, for more trust, for faith, for guidance, for greater love, for humility, all of those things that uh, I, I could identify as things that were, were not quite right. You say, well, why was that helpful? And I think it was helpful to me for the very, very same reason that spending time with his Father was helpful for Jesus. Now, you'd think if Jesus was the Son of God... He wouldn't need to pray. Or at least he wouldn't need a specific prayer time because he'd be just in constant contact with his Heavenly Father. It'd be like an ongoing conversation, you could say, within the Trinity, within Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You think it'd just be happening all the time. Like, you know, broadband to heaven. But somehow, Jesus needed to pray. Some people suggest that Jesus just prayed as an example to us. He was just praying so that we'd get the sense that we needed to pray. Um, maybe that's true. There's probably some truth in that. He was a great example. But it seems to me that as I read the good news accounts of Jesus, Jesus needed to pray. He needed time alone with God to sustain him. He needed to time to tune out from the noise of this world just as much as we do. And the mystery of the incarnation of Jesus becoming man, becoming human flesh, is something that we'll never fully understand. But the one who is fully God is also fully human. And here, somehow, in his humanity, his need to pray uh, is is evident. Even a, a, a cursory glance at the life of Jesus reveals to us that it was a busy life. All the Gospel writers noticed Jesus' busyness. And although... Um, it's in all the Gospels. If you read Mark, because Mark's quite succinct, it, it, it highlights it in particular. At one point, uh, Jesus' family are so concerned about him that they, they feel that he's, he's, um, he's lost it. Um, and so they, they go to his house where he is, where the people are crowding around, and they, they try to um, get him out because they hear he isn't even eating because he's so busy. And um, they say he's out of his mind. And I suppose this idea of eating with your family was an important thing, particularly in those days of something sacred about it. So if he's even not able to do that, his life to them seemed really out of balance. Um, and yet he loves people and he has the power to do uh, remarkable things in changing people's lives. So he seems to have one interruption after another. You only need to read the first chapter of Mark's Gospel to get a, a sense of the the pace and uh, the demands on Jesus, if you, if you start there, on the first very first day of his public ministry, he's in the synagogue uh, teaching and they, the, the audience is marvelling at his authority because he's, he's teaching just really powerfully. And in the midst of all that, uh, a demon-possessed man cries out, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebukes the demon sharply and casts it out effort, effortlessly. And and the crowd is just stunned. And then Jesus goes home and he goes home after the, the synagogue service to Peter's house for the Sabbath meal, only to discover that Peter's mother-in-law is in bed with a fever. And so he takes her by the hand and instantly heals her. And she gets up, she prepares lunch. And then word of the healing and uh, exorcism just must have travelled really fast through that seaside town of Capernaum. And the tradition of the elders didn't allow them to, to have healing or anything during the Sabbath while it was daylight. So that was seen as work. And so when, uh, at, the, at the very evening, the people awaited, Mark tells us that as soon as the sun went down, the whole city was gathered together at the door. And it's easy to imagine the, the, the street in front of Jesus' house with all these little people out there with lanterns and, and just waiting to um, come in contact with him. And that's why he came. He came because he wanted the blind to see He wanted the deaf to hear He wanted the dumb to speak He wanted the the, the people who were in bondage to be freed It's the kingdom It's arrived But a busy day Incredibly busy day And then we read immediately after that That the next morning before sunrise Jesus wakes up Makes his way out of town to a desolate place And he prays And he's gone long enough for the crowds to gather again And it prompts the disciples to go searching for him And when Peter finds him, he tells him, look, everyone is looking for you. So why does Jesus, after a busy day, go away to a desolate place in the morning to pray? You know, as I read the good news stories about Jesus, I notice that whenever he starts to talk about his relationship with his his heavenly father, with his father, he becomes almost childlike. He becomes... Dependent, very dependent. Have a look at these verses from John's Gospel. John emphasizes this uh, very strongly. Sorry, that was a verse we couldn't look at. Um, John says, The Son can do nothing of his own accord. In John 5.19. In John 5.30 it says, I can do nothing on my own. In John 8.28 it says, I, can do no- I do nothing on my own authority, but I speak just as the Father taught me. In John 12.49, an extra one, it says, The Father who sent me has has himself given me what to say and what to speak. And so we get this really strong sense that Jesus is dependent on his father. It's only a child who would say, I only do what I see my father doing. And when Jesus tells us to become like little children, he isn't telling us to do anything that he isn't already doing because he knows that he can't do life on his own. He prays and he prays and he prays and he prays. Luke tells us that this incident that Mark talks about isn't an isolated one. Luke says that Jesus would withdraw to desolate places and pray. And so when Jesus tells us that apart from me, you can do nothing, he's inviting us into a faith-filled life of dependence on our Heavenly Father. And he's telling us to realise that like him, we don't have all the resources to do life. Prayer begins to make absolutely complete sense when we realise that we can't live this fully human life on our own. And so Jesus defines himself only in relationship with his heavenly father. And his prayer, his life of prayer, is an expression of that relationship. He wants to be alone with the person that he loves. This morning I wonder maybe um, if you've been at times a little bit like me, maybe you're not, but if you've ever fallen into the trap of looking for significance and identity and acceptance in what you can achieve, independent of God, rather than in what God has achieved for you through Jesus and the identity that comes from being loved by him, loved as his child, then... I'd really commend to you this practice of the examine. It's helped me to sink my roots uh, deeper into God and the power that he wants to release in me. It's helped me to be more honest uh, with myself about the things that are not so Jesus-like in my life. And it's helped me to be more consistent in prayer and to, to rest in the knowledge that God loves me and God accepts me, and I don't have to to prove that. Um, It's a fact. I love this quote from Philip Yancey, and I can identify with it. He says, I used to see prayer as a spiritual discipline, one of those things you're supposed to do. Now I see it as a spiritual privilege, an opportunity to communicate with the creator of the universe who loves me. Hey, thanks for listening today. My prayer for you is that prayerful dependence on a loving Heavenly Father might be more and more your daily experience as you cultivate a fully human life, a life after Jesus. We're going to listen to a song now. It's an absolutely beautiful song from uh, Peter and Craig. And I wonder as you hear this song, you might pray this song as a prayer a prayer of dedication to God, a prayer that says my connection with Jesus is the most important thing in my life and nothing else will do. Thank you.